for September 26th, 2011. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 169. Zone 4 is now boarding. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, the podcast where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Matt Rather is currently being harassed as he goes through airport security, and so I'm Pete Fenzel, will be your host today. Uh, Matt, perhaps we'll be jumping in depending upon how many jokes he decides to make in front of the TSA agents and how long they detain him. But we'll be trying to dial him in during the podcast as he's traveling uh, from California to parts unknown for spy work, I believe, is the answer to what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, what was that? I said spoiler alert. Oh, spoiler alert! Yeah, because this is how that's how it ends is uh, with Matt Rather in a in a standoff against various international intelligence agencies while holding like a vial in an airport, uh, and seeing Bruce Willis jumping over a uh, of a railing with a gun. But anyway, that's not important right now. What is important, the most important thing in the world at this very moment, is that this is the three year anniversary of the consistently running weekly released. Overthinking It podcast on September 29th, 2008. Yay! Everybody can say yay. Come on, get psyched. Yay! That's awesome. So yeah, September 28th, wow. 2008, or September 29th, 2008, we started recording. We recorded our 13th podcast, which was uh, Crossing Sections Off the Map, where Matt Rather famously antagonized all the nations of the Earth in order, uh, and as, which has in fact led to the events of the day as he is on the run from the law. But no, I, I, I joke. Matt is in perfectly fine legal and uh, uh, extradition-related uh, straits. But that was... Spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. That's how it ends, with him actually <laughs> just getting a cab and leaving the airport like a normal person. But, uh, but yeah, but that was when we sort of stopped kind of jerking around with this thing and actually started pumping out a weekly show. So we want to take an opportunity to talk a little bit about what that means to try to put out a weekly show and uh, what it means for us as people who watch uh, pop culture, consume pop culture, and how it sort of changes the way you think about stuff, and what's kind of different now than what's been, been going on the last couple of years. And also, we put out the call on Twitter for questions from you guys, so we'll be talking a little bit about that. But before we get started on all that business, we have to do our question of the week, which has been the crutch that we've oh so reliably leaned on for these long three years to get <laughs> us going with these conversations and to introduce everybody. So as everybody, I'm of course, know, uh, knows, uh, I know, I think of course knows, because they've read their Emily Post. Uh, the third anniversary is your leather anniversary, mm. which is it's mm. very. It's, it's a little. You still got a little bit of a uh, little bit of uh, spice in the relationship after three years. You're 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 getting the leather on. <laughs> so uh, it's like paper, and and then leather is the third one, and then the second one I think is uh, is is heart. Um, go planet. Um, but anyway, on this the third anniversary of the consistently running overthinking it podcast every week. Panel, your question is, what is your favorite piece of leather in popular culture? Starting from <laughs> Manhattan Island, uh, the place that used to be Dutch and is now so much more than that. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Belinke. <laughs> How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing okay, and I'm going to apologize in advance if I seem a little distracted. I have, over the last two days, become hopelessly addicted to a video game called Gratuitous Space Battles. Uh, <laughs> I highly recommend you check this out. It's, it's, it's like a $15 download, uh, and it's basically like you, you, you uh, outfit spaceships, you set up a fleet, and then you hit go, and you watch what happens against the... the uh, 
you know, you're, the evil hordes you're opposing. So it's kind of like StarCraft, but like you don't actually do anything when the battle starts. You set them up, you give them orders, and then you just watch it unfold. So and it's hypnotic. No, it's like no a screensaver that you control. There's, <laughs> there's no real-time control. You just set them all in motion and then go for it. Yeah, you, you, you outfit them with <laughs> weapons, you give them sort of vague orders such as like hang back and protect each other or like rush <laughs> forward or like stay in formation or like split up and then the artificial intelligence takes over. So you have it's- no control whatsoever when the battles like I'm I'm literally like in the in the the middle of like the battle's been going on for about fifteen minutes and I haven't had any control at this point. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's awesome. It's like it's like coach mode in Madden, which my, my roommates used to always rag me on because I, I hated the live control, but I'd much rather recruit a team, you know, set up the concession prices in the stadium and then let the AI just play the season for me and just like, oh okay, I'll let you guys make your own choices. Yeah, but which is yeah. which is basically like the sports equivalent of Final Fantasy. <laughs> right. yeah. But yeah, it sounds awesome, Belinky. No, it's it's actually it's actually pretty cool, but I am I'm I'm having a serious problem, and if you guys love me, you'll stage an intervention uh, because I'm literally uh, it's it's going to destroy my relationship and my job and all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> but in the meantime, I I desperately need to my high score um to answer your question about the leather i'm gonna go classic with this and go with the, the final scene in greece where there's the, the the big conflict throughout the movie is that uh sandy is a good girl and uh cannot be with john travolta uh, i'm gonna refer to him as john travolta even though that's not the name of his character uh because he's a bad boy and and they can't overcome this their cliques are sort of like diametrically opposed um and it becomes a sort of gift of the Magi moment where John Travolta is going to become a square. He's decided that he, he loves Sandy enough so that he literally like puts on like a, like a sweater and like combs his hair and becomes uncool. Um, and then just then Sandy enters and she has, she has solved, uh, you know, cut the Gordian knot by leather. Um, that, that she has put on like tight pants, uh, tight shirt, and that she is now uh, not going to be a good girl anymore, but is going to tease her hair to obscene heights. Uh, heights <laughs> that I'm assuming, I, honestly, like if digital special effects had been invented, I would say that the hair was like added in post. But it's all the more amazing to know that that technology didn't exist. Um, and it's a beautiful moment um, proving that. Uh, people can be together so long as they change everything about who they are to make it happen. Uh, <laughs> it's like the gift of Magi, but without yeah. any irony. Yeah, the open, yeah. the open Anyone else want to start the Gordian Knot Leather Bondage Company? Because I think there's, there's money to be made there. <laughs> Excuse me while I go register at GordianKnotBondageCompany.com. <laughs> .net.org. The O. Henry comparison, I think, is much more flattering than that scene deserves, given that it's it's really just an excuse to get Olivia Newton-John in tight leather and to sort of sell out the sell out the ending of the movie. So that, I mean, that's, do, that's a good do call. You know, do you know for a fact that that was not also O. Henry's directive? <laughs> well, get, get Physical gets her in an aerobics outfit, right? So it seems like it doesn't take too much to get... Yeah. Although I guess that song is kind of legendary, I suppose. Um, but yeah, but we <laughs> we got to jump in alphabetical order because we got a lot of panelists. We got a lot of people on here celebrating the episode tonight. So looking in alphabetical order, which I often don't because once I go, I just forget about all the rest of you because I'm so pleased. <laughs> but <laughs> jumping to the next uh, next man in the row. Uh, three years ago was this man's first appearance on our podcast, and he has been a stalwart. Um, he has been our Great Wall of China that has spanned Korea. 
Um, or I, just, stop. just stop. You're just getting yourself in trouble. <laughs> I have to do this, Mark, because my podcast character gives your podcast character crap. Like it's part of what I do to force content when I don't have any other. Ideas. This is a good point. And my podcast character then you know responds with uh, indignation. Exactly. Exactly. It's sort of our I little thing. Asian indignation. Asian, <laughs> Asian indignation, even. So this is Mark Lee from New York, who's my like drive time radio opponent, apparently. So Mark, for the for the leather anniversary, the third anniversary of you spending every Sunday night with us rather than with the people in your life who you love, uh, Asian well, and otherwise. Asian and otherwise, yes. Yeah. You know whatever continent their ancestors might have come from, although we all came from Africa originally. Uh, assalamu alaikum, assalamu alaikum, and all that. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so what's your favorite piece of leather in pop culture, Mark? All right. Um, it's, I figured I should make it Arnold Schwarzenegger related. Um, sure. Given that, you know, I'm, I'm the big fan of the Arnold and the Terminator. Um, the obvious answer would have been, you know, Arnold's leather jacket from Terminator 2. But I'm going to go a little bit more off the wall and go with an Arnold movie that I actually haven't seen, Eraser. And those of you who have seen it might recall his famous line when he shoots an alligator, or perhaps it's a crocodile, uh, you know, one of those creatures, your luggage. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that scene. <laughs> I pre- your, lo- your luggage. Your luggage. <laughs> your luggage. But it means you are luggage, not like your luggage. Like- <laughs> Here's your luggage. <laughs> no, it's customary to tip. Because <laughs> Eraser was from that time period where, like, uh, they were trying to up the ante on, uh, like, uh, things and machines and sort of at cool futuristic – not futuristic, but sort of current futuristic weaponry from the sort of latter-day post-Cold War era. So there was a rail gun in Eraser, right? And there was, like, a Harrier jet, yes. uh, True Lies, and, like, there's all these, like, cool things. Um, I don't know. But I was, I was surprised when you said Arnold Schwarzenegger leather and not his, uh, his jacket that you didn't say his computer-enhanced butt from Terminator 3, which was uh, Austrian leather at its finest. Uh, <laughs> zing, kapow, zap. They were going to say Arnold Schwarzenegger's face because, you know, oh. Kapow! Zing. All right. So trudging along, marching through. We're on our, uh, we're on our, our march <laughs> to sea here as we set fire to all everything around us. Uh, another, another fine Southerner and a fine longtime compatriot and a good dear friend. Uh, Josh McNeil, how are you doing? I'm doing extremely well uh, after having been uh, thoroughly examined at the Medford International Airport Security Office. Uh, not only am I unarmed and undangerous, but I'm prepared to leave Medford, Oregon at my nearest opportunity. Wait, Medford? We've, Medford. Uh, yes, uh, a good friend of many of the people on the podcast, Javier Rivera, was married last night in, uh, yes. in, the, middle, in the middle of rural Oregon. Uh, so we've... Uh, wow. we've There's one thing enjoying. I know about Javier. I'd say that sounds like exactly where he would want to... Is, is, that like, exactly. is that the only place where they could find enough room to fit all of Javi's friends? Yes, actually, yeah. We, we, there was, uh, we, this, the, the Los Angeles uh, Bowl was booked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, and I'm not sure it would accommodate them. Like, no, every, every, like <laughs> listeners of our podcast, you all know Javi. Everyone knows Javi. Oh, yeah. We should yeah. just talk about Javi, and then everybody will be, will be satisfied. Yeah, be fine. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, so, what, about, what about the leather, man? What about the leather? So, first of all, it, it, the question is our favorite piece of leather in pop culture. I was being, you know, patted down when that was discussed. Uh, I, I, <laughs> uh, I think I got to go with uh, the Indiana Jones bullwhip. The whip? You, cho- uh, you made yes. some choice, and you chose <laughs> <laughs> Krakow. 
Oh, that's Largely. one of my favorite all-time podcast moments, by the way, was when Jordan uh, talked about like how Sophie's Choice was going to be remade with Indiana Jones having to make a difficult decision between his whip and his hat. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you go with the whip. Why the whip over the hat? What's, what's, what's the deal? Well, I feel like the you know hats have been worn by many characters in film that I like, and Wendy Jones is the only whip-carrying character that I've really got any respect for. Uh, you know, in fact, I can't think of any others outside of sort of uh, blatantly exploitative video game characters. Yeah, I was going to say uh, woman, but yeah, like Halle Berry's. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. He's the only one who carries a whip in a non-fetishy sort of way. Which I think, uh, I think it's, no, it, it shows up a lot in like old sword and sandals movies, right? Like they throw you into like like the the black the black gladiator is always like given the worst weapon. It's always like a whip and a net or something, right? Yeah. Oh, I was the, the there, I thought you were I thought you referred to the like Roman slave owners uh, using the whips and that, oh yeah, there's you know, that too. Uh huh. Those yeah, are not yeah. characters you tend to root for. Yeah. <laughs> and if anyone here is, is a, a fan of The Rock, in the movie The Rundown, he has a great slow motion fight against a man wielding two whips. <laughs> and so it's like it's like one of these things where like he like does like he like jumps in the air and flips around and like both whips sort of like miss him by an inch yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the kind of movie that like it, it was made before all movies were made in 3d but it really wanted to be made in 3d Man, I would watch the heck out of that movie in 3D, and I don't Rundown's even like it. Yeah, that's spicy, going spicy whips. That's intense. You, you remember the uh, the Tooth Fairy uh, monologue? Oh, do I ever? It's it's amazing. I can't recite. <laughs> for it's for like, those I did, of you who aren't familiar with the Tooth Fairy monologue, uh, Christopher Walken is the villain, and at one point he's talking to his henchman. He's trying to explain his aggravation at the fact that the Rock has taken a valuable artifact to him, and he compares himself to uh, a young boy who has lost his first tooth and then wakes up to discover that somebody has stolen it from under his pillow before the tooth fairy could get to it. But then the great thing is, like, as he's saying this, it's all being translated to the Spanish sentence by sentence. So it's, like, very laborious and, like, slowly paced as he, like, waits for, like, his underlings to, like, uh, try to try to uh, comprehend this. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually, I, th- I think he becomes frustrated at the cultural uh, differences. Yeah, exactly. How they can't understand what he's talking about. Are you telling me you've never heard of the Tooth Fairy? They finally found a way to, uh, to, to make him sound more laborious and, and tiny. <laughs> well, that scene was involved in the very, very short-lived Movioki craze, right? When we went to Movioki at Two Boots Pizza and Video Store, right? Like, uh, we did that scene. This is great that... Um it could really only take place in a location that has both an event space and a video store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's short-lived. Although nowadays you could probably do it with streaming stuff, but only to an yeah, extent. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, the, the yeah. idea is that like you, you go in, you select a movie... Uh, that's on the shelves of the place. You put it in like a DVD player where it is projected, and you uh, you turn on the subtitles and you perform the scene. You you mute the audio and you do the whole thing. And I remember I did a I did a I think it me and UP we did a, yep. the scene from the Never Ending Story mm-hmm. um, where uh, Atreyu <laughs> is traveling through the swamp of sadness. Yep. And his and this is this is a, such a rich scene in so many ways. His horse <laughs> becomes very depressed. That <laughs> somehow. He he manages not to be sad, even when the horse dies. But the horse just can't take it, and the horse sinks into the swamp of sadness. Yeah, uh, and he like gives his like like uh, inspirational speech to the horse about how the horse needs to like hold on and not let the swamp get to him. Yep, uh, but and it doesn't work because it's a horse. Wait, and sorry, were, did, did yeah. one of you play the horse? 
Yeah, I think I was the horse, and all I had to do was like gradually like sink until I was like lying down on the stage and people screaming at me the whole time. You wanted to be the horse, yeah. You wanted, and you had this like sad look on your face as you like sort of slowly started bending your knees and descended towards the stage. We actually took a print out of that speech and put it on a refrigerator for a couple months because it was this. Uh, it was a, quite a touchstone. Yeah, because they changed the, the night of it, and we were the only ones who showed up on the wrong night, and so we just did never-ending story movie Oki, and it was really <laughs> awesome. It was really great. Well, that's awesome. So, so you would go. So, if I were to throw, if you were to throw me the idol, I would throw you the whip. Josh is what you're saying. <laughs> or if we would throw the idol, then he would throw the whip. So there's a whip yeah. and an idol. <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking during the the uh, the video discussion about why I liked the whip so much, and I think it has something to do with the fact that I was like four or five when I saw that movie, and so for a long time I assumed that whipped cream must have something to do with a bullwhip and Indiana Jones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I was like I was like twelve or thirteen before I realized that that whipping could involve other uh, you know implements of destruction. Awesome. So okay, moving on to, to another implement of destruction. John Parrish, how are you doing? You're the only one on this podcast. I think you could kill a man with his bare hands. So what's oh. your answer to the question of the week about leather? Oh, you guys, you guys are all dangerous in your own way. All right. So my favorite element of pop culture that contains leather is, and I'm surprised I'm the first one to get this. The 1981 hit duet single between Stevie Nicks and Don Henley, Leather and Lace. Ooh. You guys, you guys know this one. This is the one with the, the very famous chorus between the two of them, as if, as if they're you know, estranged lovers. Give to me your leather, take from me my lace. And I, I love it because it's this it's this really weird metaphor for I guess sexual congress, maybe. <laughs> or or maybe just safe guess. Or maybe just, I don't know, the weird shifting boundaries between between a man and a woman in a romantic relationship because you know, it, if it is a metaphor for sex, then Thinking about what leather is and what lace is, it's kind of weird. Or maybe it's about underwear, because women wear lace underwear. But does Don Henley wear leather underwear? We've got to get down to the heart of the matter. we got to do, definitely. I should call it a codpiece at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're figuring out why they wouldn't let him leave the Hotel California, because he had some explaining to do. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it's maybe it's because he's like a modern cowboy, so he has a leather gun holster. But in that case, does Stevie Nicks have a lace gun holster? Because that seems kind of kind of impractical. Like you can't carry a gun in a lace, you know, bonnet or a nappy or whatever. I don't know. Like the the song is really complex, is what I'm saying. It works on these <laughs> intricate levels, wheels within wheels in this this nineteen this nineteen eighty two hit single off of Stevie Nicks's Belladonna album. Uh, Generations of Pennsylvania Dutch gunslingers disagree with you about the leather holster. And Jody, <laughs> Fo- and Jody Foster and Maverick disagrees with you on the lace holster. I'm sure she was wearing something. <laughs> it also it also could be just like you know when you become ex- estranged from a lover, you often have like items that just are at their apartment that you need to exchange. So I'm visualizing just like a box of like boys that you so need like, to get let's, back. Let's- Let's arrange let's arrange a date where we can meet in like a Starbucks or some other neutral location so neither of us are yeah. gonna spaz out and give me back my leather and you can give me the, the lace that I, I left over there. Like, I'm imagining it was like an arts and crafts project they were gonna do together. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just yeah. a really messed up version of Settlers of Catan, where they're just like, oh, <laughs> 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 too late. 
Speaking of travelers far from home in distant random lands, how's Matt Rather doing right now? Are you with us, Matt? Wait, am I? I am absolutely here, but uh, isn't isn't Dave before me? Oh, uh, oh, that's right. He is. That's right. You know, you know why it is because. Uh, Dave doesn't use his real name on Skype, and so I have your name first because of the M. But yeah, you know what? You go, you go back to being patted down, and don't make any jokes about bombs or shoes or anything like that, and we'll get you in just a minute. Dave Schechner, I'm so sorry that I forgot that, that – uh, that uh, see, no, you're Skype. No, no, I shouldn't tell everybody what you're Skyping in. Whoa. We're getting some, some weird sounds out there. Don't, Dave, are you still with us? Don't make me do that again. Uh, I've, I've, failed my, I've failed in my one duty that's actually ascribed in this whole thing, which is to remember the alphabetical order of all of your last names. <laughs> There's a lot of you on here today because we're celebrating the third anniversary and we're really psyched. And we hope the readers, just, the listeners are psyched too. Dave, love me up, man. Give me some uh, third anniversary love. God, if I had a dime for every time you told me either one of those things. Um, You'd have a dollar fifty, my friend. I have a dollar fifty. <laughs> 52, which is really weird. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in, in typical uh, Schechner fashion, I have two answers uh, for the question. Uh, the first, I'm, I'm going to guess almost nobody uh, amongst our cadre or listening to it has ever heard of this before, but it was this bizarrely integral part of my youth, which was an Infocom text-based adventure game called Lane Mastodon and the Leather Goddesses of Phobos, which was... Um, <laughs> You know, all, all of the sexiness that one could get from... I am uh, absolutely familiar with that. Uh, of course, thank you, property, Dave. It's, it's a fantastic piece of pop culture. If by fantastic, you mean terrible. Yeah. Um, where, yeah, now it was meant to be sort of like, you know, tongue-in-cheek, um, you know, raunchy style, in the sort of um, pre-Leisure Suit Larry era uh, philosophy. And uh, it ended up being, you know, about as stimulating a panoply for any sense as you can get from, you know a text-based adventure game. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of examining that, and, ooh, don't you want to examine that again, Elbow? <laughs> uh, but I'm actually going to go, my, my actual favorite piece of leather-involved uh, pop culture has got to be, without question, uh, the theme from the television show Rawhide. <laughs> nice, uh, nice, nice. Uh, which is just awesome in every can, possible iteration. Can you perform it for the, uh, for the listeners? Pete, I would love to, but I can't do it alone. I'm gonna, oh. I'm gonna have oh. to need you guys uh, joining in on this. Oh man, does anybody else actually know how yeah. it goes? Have we... Get them doggies. Nailed it! Awesome, perfect. Next song. Set them up. Put them out. Them and out. Take it down. Awesome. Yeah. What other? Thank you, thank you for taking my favorite piece of leather-related culture and just just beating the crap out of it, guys. <laughs> just, just kicking. I'm it sorry, I have to I have to break in here and paint a picture for you uh, because I'm tethered. I'm tethered to my computer. I I brought my headset with me, anticipating this, but Josh didn't realize he would be here in the airport at the same time as me. So he's on his cell phone, uh, skyping in, and I'm watching him walk up and down the rows of chairs with people <laughs> waiting to board. The airplane, and he's going like, bum-ba-dum, 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 bum-ba-dum. <laughs> and, and people are, are looking at him, and also looking at me wearing my like my my big telemarketing headset, um, kind of like we're kind of like we're crazy people. Matt looks like a kid like playing pilot at the airport with his little headset on. 
<laughs> you have to rocking Medford hardcore. Usually, I reserve those sorts of things for Thursday nights at the VFW by my house. <laughs> I, I gotta say, I recommend I, for uh, for free Wi-Fi, free fast Wi-Fi. I recommend the Medford Airport without reservation. <laughs> You should probably make a reservation first, though. So <laughs> yeah, they're not actually going to let you get into the waiting area unless you've got a reservation. All right, so uh, Matt, now that it's your point. turn, I think it's your turn. So I think it's time for you to leather me up. My uh, my favorite piece of leather in popular culture, you know, um, I've mentioned a bunch of times that I've been watching Star Trek The Next Generation from the beginning on uh, on Netflix Instant Streaming. And there's a great episode uh, where... Um, Oh, it's the one where an old captain of Transporter Chief O'Brien's comes aboard, and he has gotten some sort of vendetta that Picard has to talk him down from. And Picard goes into one of his kind of sermonizing homilies, his little speechifying things that he does uh, to make us all better people and better Starfleet officers. Um, and he, it's about anger. And it's, uh, he says, well, anger, after a while, it feels comfortable like old leather. <laughs> and so the the so my um my favorite use of leather in popular culture is uh, a metaphor of Captain Picard's uh and a metaphor for anger. Awesome, excellent. That's the way you, the way you sort of sli- the way you sort of slip into old resentment and uh you know where you match the old resentment uh with uh, of leather with the lace of you know, I don't know, new relationships and the uh <laughs> wait, wait, so rather how do, how does the speech end because Picard what you described Picard just makes anger sound really tempting like yeah, yeah. I love all, yeah, like sounds awesome. those beaten in leather gloves that are just always comfortable. Yeah, who wouldn't yeah. love that? Let's all let's go get some cigars. Cigars, brandies, and just be angry at something. <laughs> Pissed off. That sounds great. Hey, I just got. Yeah. I, well, Matt's I just, not subject. What Matt's not telling you is that he uh, he frequents a dominatrix named Old Resentment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she doubles as a racehorse, actually. <laughs> Man, see that that's not even the most uh, most popular in general Star Trek affiliated leather reference, right? Because that would be Ricardo Montalban's like rich Caribbean leather commercials. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, know, you, you laugh, but he revitalized the economy of Corinth. Yeah, he really did. Which is not doing so well right now because Ricardo Maltaban is no longer around to protect not it so from good, fiscal yeah. prices. Uh, and so I guess that brings it to me. And, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say the hat and, and jacket ensemble of, uh, of Launchpad McQuack from DuckTales and, uh, and Darkwing Duck uh, because he's got those like little pointy shoulder pads. They kind of stick out from his, uh, his leather coat. And it's uh, in terms of character design, I think it's a really cool character design element because he looks so much different from all of the other ducks that all look exactly the same, right? Like the, the character design in DuckTales where they change the shape of the people's bills and they change the clothes that they're wearing while still having everybody look pretty much like Donald Duck for the most part. Uh, I was always so happy to see Launchpad because he's the kind of kind of comic relief character that I kind of saw as the main reason why I was watching the show. Right? Like, as much as I enjoy the, Be- the, the Beagle Boys and, and Scrooge McDuck and the little nephews and all that other nonsense, and as much as Gizmo Duck would sort of brag about being the sort of fun person, I was always happy to see Launchpad. I admire Launchpad's outlook on life. How He's, he's sort of like a, a Camuian Sisyphus, right? He's like, you know he's going to crash the plane every time. But he's, you must imagine Launchpad happy with like the situation that he has. Um, 
So yes, so uh, I'm not going to go with the hat. I think we're going to leave Indiana Jones's whip as the main uh, the main covered piece of leather. But there we go. So that panel is our likely discussion. It's a big panel today. It's a big panel of all of the different uh, third anniversary gifts that we would all give each other. Um, so yeah, so let me let hey, me th- throw uh, it hey, open. Pete, Pete, I'm, yeah? I'm here. Uh, I'm here live with your uh, McNeil update. McNeil is browsing <laughs> the magazines at the uh, newsstand. <laughs> <laughs> Did he get, he got sheepish about like walking around the chairs and I was trying to look casual as like standing next to the men's fitness. Well, I, I figured if McNeil, I'm if I'm gonna be if I'm gonna be kind of embarrassed in an airport, I might as well look at Maxim while I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just combine that, combine embarrassments that, into one. Did, did that yeah. feel familiar Josh, that for you, McNeil? What, what was it? Like old leather. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me say, toss the question out to you. What was it? What was it? Uh, hit, hit it one more time. Let's make fun of McNeil two or three more times. I was going to say when anyway. you when you say if you're going to be embarrassed, you might as well look at Maxim while doing it. Are you are you confusing pretext for cause here or uh, the, the cause effect, vice uh-huh. versa? What's what's going on? I, I, is this I just a, looked at Maxim, so I can't really follow that logic at the moment. He's a little bit excited <laughs> by Alicia Cuthbert or Kush. Or Elijah Cuthbert, or I always forget which one is which. Elijah Dushku, Elijah Kushku. They're calling my plane right now, so I am going to attempt to surreptitiously board a plane and podcast at the same time. <laughs> Man, you have gotten, you've got drunk with power after three years of this, Josh. Drunk with power. <laughs> Oh man, awesome. Okay, so let me toss it out to you guys. You've been doing this for three years. So, like Mark and Matt and John and I, I think fairly re- fairly regularly. The rest of you guys, when you can, and Josh has been in the last couple years, but not the first year, been been really a heavy contributor. Looking back at it, has it changed the way that you consume and or enjoy, uh, depending on how cynical you want to be about your participation in, in the discourse, uh, drink, uh, popular culture, to have been doing this thing, right? Like, do you, does it change the way that, that you go to the movies or watch the television or listen to uh, albums of, of Lou Begas or of other people who are less Yes, Pete, it absolutely has. And let, and let me tell you how. I no longer <laughs> do it on Sunday night. Oh, nice. Which was a big television watching time. You'll recall that Sunday night was always like The Sopranos was on on Sunday night. It was always a big, like, TV night. Uh, and so uh, now, now I have to, you know, put all those things off uh, until Monday morning. Right. Well, there were a couple times when Game of Thrones was getting started where we actually started the podcast late. Right, and that was like, the first time in a long time we acknowledged that Sunday night had been traditionally a, a TV watching night. Even going back to X Files days, right? Like, and, and Star Trek: The Next Generation used to be on on Sunday nights at seven o'clock, at least where I lived. I believe I think it was Sunday. Maybe it was Saturday night. It was different. Star Trek was syndicated, so it was um, it was on at a different time for whatever local station had uh, had gotten the rights to it in that thing. So, like mine, it was like Tuesday at seven or something like that. Not even prime time. <laughs> I mean, oh. that, was, that was that was half because of syndication and half because the tapes hit this like anomaly while on the road and there was this tachyon pulse and <laughs> it gets it gets it gets kind of stupidly complicated at some point but there are no boobs so oh, uh, spoiler a- alert. Well, we actually, we actually used to get together, many of us, when we were writing together in college, we would get together on Sunday nights, watch The Simpsons, and then write, as you recall. So this that's true, yeah. For many of us, we've been doing this for thirteen years. I could hear the ticket thing beeping tickets in. <laughs> amazing we're getting the fourth year of the podcast off to an amazing start by launching it 
in the sky. So the, the title, the title of this podcast will be uh, "Zone Four Passengers Welcome to Board at This Time." <laughs> so wait, Pat, are you and Josh on the same plane, or are you on different planes from the same airport? Oh, we lost him. No, we're, no, we're, we're in the same airport. I'm actually watching Josh, and I'm uh, I'm watching Josh go right now. He's uh, he's in line. Um, <laughs> Josh, Josh. Josh wears a backpack more uh, more rakishly than any other man that I know. Scoliosis causes a jaunty angle. It turns out. <laughs> Restrictions breed creativity, my friend. You take lemons and make lemonade and sell that nonsense. So, yeah, I'm trying to answer this question. I, I am going back and forth and thinking that have I gotten more sensitive to racism and issues of uh, portrayal of race and ethnicity in pop culture because of this podcast, because of this, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of a character that I play on this podcast, being the only minority on it. Um, right. Part of me wants to be say no that I've sort of always been sensitive to this and that you know just bringing that to the table. But I know for sure that like I'm I'm looking out from it in a way that I definitely did not before, and it sort of all came to a head with uh, what the X Men. The X-Men movie where, like, um, you know, the, uh, of course, you know, the black guy dies. Spoiler alert, the black guy dies. And at the end of the movie, uh, it's, like, a bunch of white dudes. Uh, yeah, left, yeah, you know, yeah. Left with Dr. X at the end of the movie. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting because people notice different things, right? I mean, like, it's, we've seen it a dozen times if we've seen it once, and we've definitely seen it once, where you post something that's even, like, mildly addressing the, an issue of this nature, like a racism issue, a sexism issue, but not one that's overt, one that's sort of programmed into the into the the code of the of the story, and something that's sort of inborn and, and easy to ignore if you're not looking for it, but almost impossible to ignore if you're not looking for it. And people react to it with with vitriol and anger if they because they resent this way of thinking about things, right? And like uh, they don't want you to sort of. Uh, pull back the curtain and let you see like oh actually no it is really kind of uncomfortable um but the question is are are we the ones who are importing this and do we do it kind of consistently are they doing it like are we is ignorance just bliss is it just ignorance like is it better to not be critical of pop culture so you could enjoy it more um is there like a purpose to is there is there a degree to which the thing that we are doing is done better because we are aware that we are doing it uh i guess is, is what i'm saying there wow um, yeah, yeah I don't know, you're man. saying you're yeah. saying that that's a, there's like a Heisenberg certainty principle of, uh, <laughs> of what we do that the act of observing ourselves observing causes us to observe ourselves observing ourselves uh, observing. Yeah, but um, what it is 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 it's like yet another iteration of Godelian meta logic uh, thrown out in this podcast, which is my personal drinking game. So you know, bottoms up. Hash that out for people so that people know what we're talking. Kurt Goodell uh, is uh, sometimes called like the dark prince of mathematics um, by at least one nerd that I know. Um, yeah, basically uh, was like one of the big theorists in um, uh, like abstract set theory and and uh, basically like looking at the metalogical structure of mathematics itself. Like, you know, what does it mean to be a theorem? Uh, how can you define whether or not, you know, things can be proven or not proven and so forth. And, and basically came like uh, proved through a series of uh, self-reflexive axioms, you know, axioms that called to themselves as part of their invocation and would require calling to themselves as part of their proofs, could show that the more complex and inclusive you try to make any sort of descriptive system, any, any mathematical system, you know, like the more accurate you try and describe something, 
um, the more certain it becomes that you also create into being things which could no longer be true or false, but were sort of like neither true nor false, but were still valid. The, the classic example being the sentence I'm currently saying is false. Right. Right. So once you kind of set up that prescription to or that formulaic way of looking at true and false statements and that sort of linguistic structure for it, you then create the feedback that makes that difficult. To, yeah, you literally yeah. cannot have one without the other. And his sort of place in the idea of like reflexivity comes both from um, you know the fact that like this reflexive self invocation. Um, it, it, you know, it, it exemplifies these statements, which are which are valid theorems, but cannot be proven one way or another. But he also used that as the technique by which you can derive, you know, new mathematical expressions and um, and and thereby like establish this meta logic on top of like the existing logic. Right. But, right. Right. You know, yeah. Anyway. So how does that how does that appeal to apply to say like Justin Bieber? Like how would we do that? Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. how do we? How do we? How can we go Delian metalogic somebody? Like, wow. like, well, is that like punking them? Like, uh, <laughs> I can, can tag in self-invoked, bitch. <laughs> Shackner, I can I can tag in for you if you want me to to field this because I have I have yep, a please. remaining example that I was I was going to try and shoehorn in and you gave me a, a perfect shoe to horn. I guess I don't I don't know metaphor eject. All right, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. So. Inception, for instance, uh, we had a, a very, what I think was a very good podcast talking about Inception and all the various things that went on there. And I brought up the notion that the the weird sort of ominous tones that we hear throughout are really just the ADPF song, uh, Je ne regrette rien, being played at a th- like a 32x or whatever slowed down pace, which makes sense given the the time dilation that happens as you go deeper within dreams and that was something that other people also picked up on you know later on and then so, some folks broke down the audio and made that but so we i brought that up on the podcast but i was thinking about that while i was watching the movie in the theater and i was thinking oh this is going to be great to bring up on the podcast and at the same time i was hoping like oh i hope no one gets to this before me on the podcast all the other guys are really well versed in musical theory i'll bet someone else picked up on this so while I was in the moment watching the movie, I was also not only analyzing the movie, but thinking about how to present my analysis of the movie at a future date. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing by any stretch, it is probably not the immediate result that the author, Christopher Nolan, intended. It's, I mean, if he probably wouldn't be hurt to know that his movies, you know, encourage deeper analysis by their by their audience. He'd probably be flattered to know that. But he he probably constructs them in such a way such that you're meant to enjoy them and take them take them at face value. And then maybe afterward, you know, or maybe on a second or third viewing, discover some deep things. Not necessarily be immersed in the moment, picking it apart as a as a critic or as a creator oneself. Mm. So is this something that is happening to movies in general? Um, is this just Christopher Nolan? Is it is it a, is it time to add kind of like uh, you know self consideration, log- scenes of logical self consideration and ideological interpretation to like the Sidfield paradigm, like along with character development and uh, and like the, the the midpoint and like all that other stuff. Um, is, is, is this a kind of thing where you're seeing it more? Because I, I do feel like Christopher Nolan movies have moments where they're doing that, and then it's like, okay, now we're going to have a scene that you're comfortable with that's easy for you to watch, right? And we're going to balance that out. Like, oh, here's this sort of like <laughs> spinning room ballet scene, and like here's the scene where we talk about the nature of reality, and then like here's the car chase, 
right? Uh, <laughs> um, is this part? Is this something that we can start looking for in our formula and sort of self-prescribe? Uh, well, self-prescribe is the wrong word, but because we're not doing it for ourselves, or they're, I mean, they're doing it for themselves, I suppose, but it doesn't carry the same purpose. Actually, the lesson, Pete, that I take from what you say is actually not that uh, Christopher Nolan movies need more meta discourse. It's that our podcast needs more car chases. <laughs> <laughs> well, how are we going to do that if you guys are flying airplanes all over the place? I, well, airplane chases, then that uh, you know yeah. would be fine. <laughs> be like, uh, it's obvious. Yeah. Well, I yeah. was thinking about how you observing Josh changed the way that Josh was talking to himself at the airport in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the airport, and so he went and did that in a different way, and that of course affects the way that people. You have no idea. There's somebody who saw that who's now going to like Gwyneth Paltrow sliding doors herself, right, and like get a whole different haircut than Affleck because Josh was talking. She's going to inexplicably still have a career. What, what do you mean inexplicably still have a career? You don't think Gwyneth Paltrow is a successful actress? I, I don't think but, she should have been after sliding doors. Really, sliding doors was good. Are you serious? Uh, uh, I don't know. Wait, I don't, what? Senzel, what? Did, you, did you just cross over two Gwyneth Paltrow movies, like Sliding Doors and that one where she gets on a plane with uh, with uh, Ben Affleck? Because those are two separate movies. Oh wait, so so okay, so she gets on a plane with Ben Affleck. <laughs> in which movie does Gwyneth Paltrow get? On? Maybe I'm in some sort of co- temporal causality loop where these <laughs> things are happening at the same time. Time um, data. <laughs> uh, you beat me to it. I was about to make that very joke myself. No, the, the the dude in uh in Sliding Doors is is apparently uh, I'm looking it up now. John Hanna. He's, he's the comic relief in the Mummy movies. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is not Ben Affleck, but that's where she's getting on a subway train, and like she either makes the subway train or doesn't, and because of this, like her life departs in in two different, very, very distinct ways. But what is the Gwyneth Paltrow? Ben? Oh, that's uh, is that that's not Shakespeare in Love? There's not a scene where like. Yeah. Gwyneth- so I was like, hey, oh, Joseph, actually, here, I'm going to go have sex with Ben Affleck. Um, it's, uh, that would be something else. But, um, but Affleck is in Shakespeare in Love. Let's not oh, forget. Yes. One, of yeah, the many, one of the many offenses of Shakespeare in Love is that it has Ben Affleck. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. So let's see. Which one is the one where she gets on a plane with Ben Affleck? It's not Dogma because they ride the bus in Dogma. Um, but they actually dated too, right? Can none of us be bothered to to go- hang on? I'm going to Google this. Let's change the subject and keep going because like there's nine of us here and none of us are that interested in googling this one crappy movie. Sound- <laughs> it's called Bounce, right? Is that the movie? Wow, I uh, think it is. If it's about a plane and it's called Bounce, that is important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little unfortunate. <laughs> Oh, that's right, because it's got that great – you know, the picture – I recognize it now, um, I, I think, because there's this picture. The poster for Bounce is like Gwyneth Paltrow and Ben Affleck's faces next to each other in a fairly obviously photoshopped manner as they're sort of like looking lovingly at something that isn't each other. Like they're sort of like looking in the vaguely in each other's direction, but uh, but they're not actually making eye contact with – it's like, I'm so awesome. And I think that picture of Ben Affleck was hanging on my sister's wall. Uh, like cut out of a newspaper at one point as a joke. One of my sisters was taunting one of my other sisters by cutting out pictures of Ben Affleck and posting them around our house. Um, so I think that might have been some sort of weird self-observation and self-prescription taking place. Um, but yeah, but there you go. So apparently this was a thing that happened. But if if anyone in the comments wants to talk about any other collaborations between uh, Ben Affleck and Gwyneth Paltrow that we're missing, because we are Google Foo has slowed down in our three years of old age as we've gotten increasingly leathery, 
Um, um, but anyway, uh, nice, nice callback there, Pete. Nice callback. I'm trying my best. You know, we want to link this thing together. I want this to be like a. I'm a vorticist, really. Like when it comes right down to it, in terms of how I see I see art, and that's referring to the sort of early 20th century uh, notion of all of art and culture sort of swirling around at sort of key points um, and, uh, and kind of reinforcing itself and talking about itself uh, and becoming a sort of generative energy, right? Where it's like, if I talk about Ben Affleck, I'm also talking about Jennifer Garner because of their association in Daredevil and also in real life where they have babies. Uh, but then when I'm also talking about Jennifer Garner, then I'm also talking about Alias, which brings in J.J. Abrams and brings in the unexpected and twists and things that are never explained. It's which caught in a loop. And the idea is that all these things kind of swirl together, and uh, an appropriate way to go about making a poem would be to sort of like constantly reference things. And it, it refers to Ezra Pound's work in particular and the cantos where he brings in uh, different languages that he doesn't really speak, but he tries to in kind of a pretentious way and like pulls it all together into this like craziness. Uh, and he's the guy who kind of like made Elliot make the wasteland more crazy. Right from our perspective, not crazy from an unhinged way because it's very hyper orderly in the way that it's conceived, but uh, but makes it more foreign to us uh, because there's sort of a more aggressive idea of how um, language and poetry and aesthetic should be functioning in a, in a cultural way. Um, but yeah, but that's my attempt to add something substantive because now we're trying to add substantive stuff after Schechner and Godel going off like that. I want to make sure that people all are. Getting I can, all I can yeah, add sorry about that. the monologue is: Are we sure that the, the movie Bounce has nothing to do with the Bon Jovi album? <laughs> which I bought on opening on the day it came out. I bought two albums the day they came out, I think. The Bounce album, and then uh, there was a, a Cindy Lauper album that I bought now, once. How many people do you think accidentally bought the Bon Jovi album thinking that it was the, the soundtrack to the movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, the Bon Jovi album Bounce is not very good, right? Um, it's almost, I mean, it's got to be better than the soundtrack to the Gwyneth Paltrow Ben Affleck movie, right? This is probably true. So bounce, Ben. I want to go to the. Is there a disambag and disambiguation? Um, so is there a disambiguation page on Wikipedia for bounce that can tell us all the different things that bounce is? Oh, there is. In fact, it starts. <laughs> Are you looking for the drawing sheet? <laughs> the phenomenon in physics where objects collide and against planes or surfaces, <laughs> and then it goes. Oh, I'm with that. But we got a lot of people on this podcast, and I want to hear more takes on, on how pop culture has affected – how being a pop culture commentator has affected how you enjoy things. Or maybe other things about being a pop culture commentator, like how it's affected your personal relationships or, or how it's affected what pants you choose when you go to the Gap or Old Navy or Banana Republic Absolutely. or any other franchise owned I'll, by that I'll tell you. I'll tell you, Pete, how it's affected my personal relationships. Um, I begin most of my sentences uh, with my girlfriend and just close friends and people I meet randomly on the street by, by saying, you know, as a cultural commentator, I think – and then saying what I was going to say anyway. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so I, you know, I think it's about four fifteen right now. Yeah, but as a cultural commentator, I think it's uh, getting close to four thirty. <laughs> and, and actually, go ahead, Matt. If you want to take that, if you want to take that a step further, um, you can make it sort of normative, and you can say, as a cultural commenter, commentator, I have a responsibility to, to tell you that it's four fifteen right now. You know what I mean? As a as a cultural commentator, I uh, I have a responsibility to tell you that I don't much care for the pumpkin the pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks. <laughs> What? Here's what I want to add. have an audience now, right? That uh, puts some credibility, uh, take some credibility from what it is that we say, be it about pumpkin spice lattes or racism in movies or what have you, right? So this is what I want to talk about: is our relationship with the audience. Uh, oh, yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. that like it has grown significantly, like way past I think any of us would have anticipated three years ago when we started this. Uh, we have met many of them, IRL. In real life, you know, at the overthinking meetup we did a few weeks ago, um, the first, uh, hopefully, of many more beyond that. 
So um, I, I guess in, from my perspective, I'm sort of in awe and grateful for the fact that we do have the audience. And so, you know, <clears throat> very appreciative of listeners who choose to download and listen and, and, and comment with us. Yeah. So let's talk about the audience. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I've had people come in to see improv shows that have been overthinking of listeners, and that's been really wonderful to meet people. We had some people this past week. And, and I, I, w- I would say also that when we, when we talk about ourselves being cultural commentators, I would say that I, I would give that same self-description to anybody who listens to our podcast who would want to say that about themselves, right? Because it's, it's, almost, um, it's, it's almost less of a thing that you do, uh, more of sort of like a thing that you participate in, in in a broader sense, right? Like you can sort of believe that it's true about yourself and it changes the way that you think. I don't know. Maybe I've been too caught up it's in like, this. It's, idea. It's, like being in the, it's like being in the matrix. You know what I mean? Like uh, you, you can't really be told what cultural commentary is. You just have to see it for yourself. Yeah. And I mean, also, you know, there are, there isn't, there, there's a, there's a lot of talk in, in theatrical discourse or theatrical, not discourse. You can drink, but I didn't mean to say that, but in like theatrical academic theory and such about the relationship between an audience and a performer. And I do think that we don't have a, a particularly impermeable fourth wall here, right? Like we talk to people on, like right now I can tell you, like I can look on the Twitters and I can be like, oh, like Amanda, jo- Amanda Jorda just tweeted us and said, we should overthink anti-intellectualism, uh, like Lee suggested on the site. We're probably not going to do that right now, but, um, I'm glad that Amanda is suggesting it. Now seems funny. <laughs> what? Char- uh, Charles uh, from England, who has written in a couple times, wrote in and uh, said, uh, overthink underthinking. That was his uh, suggestion in an email to podcastoverthinkingit.com um, for the, the third anniversary show. That is to say the kind of, uh, the kind of thing that we encounter among people who, who, who get angry uh, with us at what we do or maybe <laughs> – maybe, Maybe not with our maybe not with our uh, our website or our show, but I, you know I'm sure you've all had the experience that I've had growing up at some point where it's like I really wanted to talk about some you know some episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation that was really jazzing me that I really you know wanted to uh, that I really had some very deep ideas about and uh, you know you get the eye roll you get the oh, okay it's just a television show you know it's just there for entertainment you should just uh switch your brain off and and enjoy it um i don't know it's it seems to be in in the air and the thing about our audience i mean the thing that i think that we have in our audience and one of the reasons why a site like this has an audience is because we all have that experience right like of um of being uh, you know I, I don't mean to to make it sound too marginalized or too you know <laughs> too oppressed a minority uh the overthinkers um solidaridad mis hermanos but the um uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but we all have that that kind of experience of getting really jazzed about something and and having the people around you just not get it. And um, the the fact that we can have kind of a space to to uh, uh, to share that it's you know it's like um, have you ever had the feeling like oh I can't wait to tell X about this when you see something that you know your friend is into and uh, you know what I mean you want to tell your buddy hey you wouldn't believe who I just saw on the street Ben Hathwick and Gwyneth. Gwyneth Paltrow together, um, the uh, because you know I know that Pete is very into uh, to those two and like you know has Google <laughs> Google alerts yeah. for both of them uh, set up and so you know I want to tell people 
I, I kind of have that, that thing about the podcast or about the site where it's like, oh man, I want to bring this to overthinking it because I know that, um, uh, I know that whatever I put out there, uh, one of you guys or, or one of the, the readers in the comments is going to improve on it. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's going to make it, it's going to make it a better thing by sort of bringing it to the collective and, uh, and, and, you know, I don't know, sort of offering it, offering it up. Wow. Does that sound pretentious? Oh, hey, on your McNeil watch, I just, uh, I see the plane, I see the small plane, uh, 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 careening across the one way and taking flight. So, uh, McNeil is airborne, just in case you were wondering. Does, nice. does it appear, does it appear as though the controlling equipment has been interfered with by use of his cell phone? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll add to what you said, Matt, by saying that I think that that, that's one thing that reflects is that I don't think, that we think that we're smarter or better at this stuff than our audiences, right? Like, well, we're better at it in the sense that we do it, at, I mean, we, we, we produce, right? Like, like, we record this podcast every week, right? And, and we say we do it every week. There have been weeks where we've recorded two, and then we've privately taken a week off, and we've posted the second podcast. But we've published Well, yeah, we, we release a podcast every week. Yeah, sure, exactly. absolutely. And that's, like, I, I think actually what, what you're saying is, is, is right on point, because it's not like the thing, you know, the thing that makes us different is that we publish an article every day, <clears throat> sometimes. Right. But, uh, you, you know what I mean? That's, that's, that's the only thing. Um, it's it's the it's the doing of it, and there are uh, yeah. Uh, every time I read our comments, I'm reminded that we are not always the best at the thing we do. At least I'm not. <laughs> well, you have to be. I, I think if people aren't yelling you at the internet, you're doing it wrong, right? That's yelling at you on the internet, yelling at the internet. If people aren't just yelling, um, that that lost. Although, I mean, Pete, you know, you always say that people aren't generally yelling at us on the internet. That we're, we're not an inflammatory site. Well, you don't go all the places that I go to, so they're yelling at me, but for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, but, but Pete, you 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 frequent you know darker corners of the internet than than overthinking it. One of the one of the interesting things about our site, and it's interesting, and it it has to do with us and the the atmosphere that we've created, but it also has to do with I think just dumb luck, and and the fact that we are we are very popular, but we're not that popular. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're not like a a, a YouTube level of popular, uh, not even close, is the fact that our, uh, the tone of our site is so, so civil, you know, and that, um, uh, and that, that sort of both genders are sort of welcome on our site and, yep. and, uh, you know, have a, a space to kind of express issues, uh, you know, even talking about sort of gender and pop culture, which we, we do a lot. That is not the norm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That is not the norm on 4chan. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sort of, um, is there a norm on 4chan? <laughs> didn't, didn't they have him brought up back and beaten to death <laughs> with like a dildo? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, Dave. 4chan is the new normal. I, I just like to say that we on the Overthinking It podcast totally called the whole anonymous thing before it happened, uh, before it really went down. If you want to go back and listen to 4chanic discourse, and we talk about the sort of political potential political power of of the sort of uh, of that of that culture, and then what happened subsequently, I feel pretty proud of that. That's one of the prognostications that I feel kind of prouder of of the things that we talked about on the podcast. Can you describe that a little bit more yeah. for those who haven't who haven't heard that one? So so okay, so we had a we had a podcast where we talked about um, the potential. Uh, cultural impact and, and influence of of people who are on 4chan and related sites. It wasn't just strictly 4chan, but it was sort of like the, the almost the um, there's a, a degree to which they think of themselves as subaltern. This sort of like subsection of the online population that like is very has a lot of built up anger and also a lot of built up kind of uh, reservations about participating in the kind of um, civility and and uh, and kind of. Uh, 
consensus that drives a lot of day-to-day functioning of society, right? Like the idea that if, if all of a sudden the president says, okay, everybody, like y'all have to wear these armbands and people are like, okay. And then these guys are like, that's bullshit, right? And I'm sorry, you can edit that out. I apologize for cursing. We're going to get a chili pepper for that one. Um, but like, think about that in like a much, much smaller degree where it's like, okay, everybody, you know, the parking meters are now going to have to take 20 minutes instead of 30 minutes. And there's a certain subset of people on the internet who are going to get like really angry about that. But also like they're protected from, uh, a certain amount of homogeneity by the fact that they disregard a whole lot of other social norms, right? So it's like because they, they're they not afraid to be very racist or because they're not afraid to hang out in places where there's lots of child pornography or because they're not afraid to, like, you know, curse out random people or go hunt them down, the places where they hang out become unsavory. And because the places become unsavory, they become harder to govern, right? Uh, and then they don't become as as conformist. And then this ends up having... It's, it's, it's basically... It's the, it's the Moss Eisley of the internet, right? Exactly. And it becomes – these places become locuses of independent political power that can – well, it's not independent. It depends on different – it has a different center of gravity. And then those, those things can be locus for action. And the big, the big initial example is the uh, anonymous campaign against the Church of Scientology, which I was sort of – saw and was like, wow. Like this is this big scary thing, right? Like you've got people in masks that are coordinating in front of churches uh, and, are, and are intimidating and harassing the people who are going in and out of the churches. Now, granted, it feels justifiable because of the sketchy things that Scientology has done deserve it. Um, but this is something I'm like, wow, like the internet is doing this thing, right? And, uh, and I feel like the fact that people are going to places where they're not being criticized for saying other things that are against social norms empowers them to do this more, right? And then I think the place, and then we talked about it on the podcast, and then a while later, all the stuff with WikiLeaks started happening, right? And you start having people who in real life are kind of mild-mannered and do their thing, but at home, they're like downloading low, you know, low uh, altitude orbital ion cannon or whatever stuff, and they're, and they're participating in these, in these attacks on like credit card sites, right? And like all this other stuff, and they're part of this like subaltern uh, organization, and then like Anonymous becomes this big thing, and it starts going after these different things, because it's something that like the NATO is talking about, right? Um, and it's something that is like a huge uh, threat to governments and to companies and all this other stuff. Um, and I do think that a big part of why it was able to happen was because of the way that people are allowed to say, like, talk about television, talk about movies, talk about pictures and images and things that they like without feeling like they're being censored. And then it becomes a scary thing, right? And it, it feels heroic. We talked about the heroism of it, but also about the scariness of it, I believe, um, Sure. Uh, sure. Absolutely. We, we were very. I recall that we were very scared at the time that 4chan would discover overthinking it, and uh, you know that would just spell disaster for all of us because I cannot fight that. You know they are legion. You know. Yeah. But I would also say, like, <laughs> speaking of these things in shorthand, because obviously all of 4chan isn't like this. It's not just 4chan that is like this, and really we're talking about a very disparate. And nowadays we also have this grown out into whole other segments of the population. We have the flash robs going on, right, with people coordinating, and the Arab Spring even, which is the same sort of thing with people online talking out talking in places that are outside of where social pressure is trying to get them to talk in certain ways and this builds momentum right and then it explodes uh because social capital is powerful um and even when it's it's, i mean and uh, right like this is why overthinking it requires the just to bring it back to our site a little bit i i'm sorry if you had more to say pete but just to kind of just kind of fish hook around and and uh, you know talk about us some more you know what's interesting you know what's fascinating us the um uh also bears <laughs> um the uh so creepy anyway go ahead <laughs> uh, 
overthinking it requires the internet. I mean, that is to say, I don't think we could really do what we would do if we were like a liber, uh, like a literary debate society, you know, in the coffee houses of Philadelphia, you know, in in the Enlightenment, like uh, debating, I don't know, revolutionary politics in America or something like that. We, it Batman actually requires 18th century. You mean? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, we, uh, yeah, whatever, whatever the. I guess Benjamin Franklin kind of was the equivalent of Batman uh, in the 18th century. I mean, the man was a was an inventor, a statesman, and a super spy, uh, yeah. and also, also and got an quite well. Incredible lover, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 Batman wasn't a good lover because he was uh, too busy fighting crime. Didn't have. I didn't. I didn't say good. I said incredible. <laughs> he's not the founding father we deserve, but he's the founding, founding father, father we need. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. You start, yeah, you start your country with the founders you have, not the founders you wish you had. In uh, in retrospect, but um, the internet had rainstorm because he can take it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The internet allows these intentional communities to kind of to uh, to coalesce, and the other thing it allows us is access to media right uh, on a regular basis, and so we can kind of we can kind of do juxtapositions of things uh, that might not have been possible before, Um, or we can go back to uh, we can go back to um, we can go back to the source material and examine it. I uh, I read some in college. I read some early film criticism, and you'd be surprised how often. Um, the uh, the things that they say about movies are inaccurate because they only saw it once on film, and it was probably a while ago when they write right. about it. When you actually when you actually go back to the movie, um, it it actually is not the case. You know what I mean? That that like Max von Sydow movie is one uh, one shot that doesn't have any cutting in it uh, at all. Um, but we can sort of we can sort of watch obsessively. So it it get, the internet gives us media, and it also gives us the the tools for for sort of very lightweight social organization yeah 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 no definitely and it is it is kind of cool that things are verifiable right that like we can go back and touch touch on things i mean it also kind of uh that's an ethos that's that's an ethos of 4chan right it's like pick or it didn't happen you know what i mean yeah 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 to say and and these are i mean these are rules of evidence and like every every discourse drink needs um needs rules for evidence which uh, which is to say needs a way of governing what what constitutes a legitimate statement in the discourse and in in yeah, philosophical he, logic or mathematical logic there's certain things in legal discourse there's certain things um in science certain things count as like a result that is repeatable and verifiable and certain things don't and on the internet i think we're, we're discovering that like uh that th- there are these emerging there are these emerging rules for uh, rules of evidence as i say yeah, yeah, yeah. Ra- rather, yeah. Sorry, to take a to take a slight contrary tack, you say that this this sort of discourse drink, this sort of site couldn't couldn't really have originated, uh, you know, in the in the 18th century or what have you. I'm going to disagree slightly uh, in that. You know, obviously, something of this audience and this, you know, this scope couldn't have existed prior to really the 21st century and social media, et cetera, et cetera. But you guys have described yourself that this. That the site and the podcast and everything associated with it was sort of an outgrowth of the conversations that you had when you were going to undergraduate school together, just talking about movies and applying what uh, what criticism and analysis you 
uh, you had learned as undergrads to the pop culture that you were seeing at the time. And then, you know, after you all graduated, you turned this into a site. And then eventually I came along and made it great. But uh, <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you, John. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, up until that point, it was entirely a sort of personal, informal discussion of the sort of type that could have happened uh, you know, at any point in the, you know, 50 to 100 years pr- prior to that, just without having a website to host it. Fair enough. Hey, um, let's we're, we're starting to run a little short on time. So let's make good on what we actually uh, tried to do and, and bring up the topics that are that are tweet fans, that are tweeters, that are twat, twatters, twatters, whatever you call the people that are on Twitter. Uh, tweet, tweet. I don't even know. Tweeps. That's what it is. Tweeps. What our tweeps have brought up. Uh, and let's go through it real quick. So can anybody say so? So dromedary. Uh, Came, uh, came out and said, how do you personally explain morphic knowledge? So can anybody tackle that, what morphic knowledge is and how they can perf- personally explain it? Because I am Googling this thing as hard as I can, and I'm not sure exactly what it means. Does, does she um, mean morphic sure. knowledge? My, my understanding, provided he doesn't want me to explain it accurately, because I can't make any promises there, is that morphic knowledge is a term for the phenomenon where People in disparate parts of the globe seem to know something or discover something at the same time without necessarily having contact with each other. So the the most accessible contemporary example is Leibniz and Newton simultaneously discovering the calculus. Although that even that's not a great example because there was a culture of mathematical and scientific correspondence throughout Europe at the time, such yeah. that there was a similar pool of discoveries. But it's like it's, it's probably probably the better example is uh, is Deep Impact and Armageddon. <laughs> but that's on purpose. That's yeah. the asteroids making yeah. a conspiracy. But uh, no, like like, diff- like so. For example, like different cultures on other ends of the globe discovering, I don't know, discovering the wheel at the same time, or discovering uh, irrigation at the same time. Or I, I can't, I can't think of a particularly good example because, again, I don't really know what I'm talking about, and I could still be wrong about what morphic knowledge is. And if I am, it will be preserved in this recording for all eternity. But I'm going to keep going anyway. So. But yes, that is that is my understanding of what mor- morphic knowledge is. How to explain that? Uh, I just did. That's the limits of my explanation. Yeah, you know, I mean, civilization. I- when uh, you move your little guy into the hut, and all of a sudden, um, <laughs> a, a pottery. <laughs> Awesome. Exactly. It's those huts that transmit things. But we've learned this week that things can move faster than the speed of light, right? Because peer review doesn't matter. Uh, so. <laughs> anyway, let's I'll jump in. that on a t-shirt, Pete. <laughs> All right. Are there any plans for more commentaries from J-Dubs SA? Uh, inquiring overview, overview fans want to know. Are we doing the overview again anytime soon, guys? Yes, absolutely. We're going to do the overview again. Uh, you can get the commentaries there at overthinking.com store. We've been a little busy with, uh, with other pro- projects, including a, uh, a pretty thoroughgoing redesign of the site. <gasps> what? what did, what did, what did he say? What did he, uh, what did he announce? Um, it's going to be white on white. You're not going to be able to read any of it. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, we've been. <laughs> it's going to be multicultural and multicultural. It's going to be just a polyglot. It's going to be a syncretic transnational. Everything you say, Matt, I just think, oh, it's going to be polyglot. So Amanda Jordan was saying we should overthink anti-intellectualism. Have we covered Amanda's question? You're just into the. <laughs> um, rather stop talking uh, eventually 
All right, cool, cool, cool. Hey, and we did Amanda's thing. We kind of addressed anti-intellectualism, right? I think we're we're we'll do that in more depth at some point soon. I think it's a pretty meaty topic that we can dedicate more time to. Stupid. <laughs> it's dumb. Why would yeah. you ask such a question? Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's play sports instead. Yeah. And then JJ Saul asked us, ever do anything on Limitless on the podcast? Though I haven't seen it, assume it's Flowers for Algernon meets Trading Places, which is, I think, <laughs> that's a question. <laughs> which is awesome. I feel like it's a, uh, it's a, it's an, it's like, hey, here's a question that doesn't matter so that I can set up my awesome joke, which I love. I love that. Um, so that is an awesome joke. And I think I that, uh, watch an Eddie Murphy, uh, movie. Uh, with uh, 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 flowers are alternate starring Eddie Murphy. Even if it's if it's computer animated and he's just the voice of the mouse, I'd I'd watch it. Yeah, I think that um, Bradley Cooper, you come home this instant would be a good podcast to listen to. The episode one fifty two where we talk about Bradley Cooper uh, is, is probably a good one if you want podcast coverage of Limitless. I don't know if Limitless had actually come out at that point, but we talk a lot about Bradley Cooper as a leading man, and I think that might be a good place to to catch up. Um, but yeah, oh, I love flowers for Algernon. And hey, do we want to do we want to finish up today by talking about uh, the little special thing that we all did for Matt Rather this week? <laughs> <laughs> do we want to do this? Uh, what well, was it called? Now Make- you have to. You've- exactly. So we had a. So where was the original? Uh, where's the original inspiration? We had a little email thread on the back end today or this week where we all talked about making Matt Rather a star. Because as you may very well know, uh, Matthew Rather is a uh, a drama student and an aspiring and and practicing and working actor. Uh, who is destined to become a household name, and we just want to figure out how this is going to take place. Um, so, so Paul, uh, listener Paul, wrote in oh, uh, with a thing. Right. He said, uh, uh, "Paul BD is his uh, online handle." Dear overthinkers, in your last over uh, your last episode, I found you overthinking of overthinker Matt Rather's name. Highly entertaining. I also uh, noticed that Matt Rather has very little film credits on IMDb. Exactly one, in fact, is what I have on IMDb. Is that so, is that a different one? No, it's not. None of the none of the sound none of the soundtrack stuff is on there. It's it's this short film that I did uh, in Fall River, Massachusetts. Funny story. I'll tell it another time. So uh, I thought it would be a fun idea for some overthinkers to pitch project ideas that would launch Matt Rather into stardom. And you know, being an incurable narcissist. He's about to say incurable narcissist. Spoiler alert! Spoiler. So, uh, so as we get as we get Matt back on, um, so do we want to go through the various pitches that we came up with for I think this? We have to. Okay. So John right, Paris was I'll, the first one. I'll start it off because I had the top of the list. So it's Matt Rather is Dan Rather in the Gilda Radner story. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> uh, and then Jordan was next. Does anyone want to hit up Jordan? You got it. Go for it. Okay. So Matt Rather is. Justin Bieber plus 14 years, <laughs> uh, which I think is something that I would, I would definitely watch. <laughs> uh, the one that I had was Matt Rather is unable to take your call right now, but he'll leave your number in a brief message. He'll get back to you as soon as he can. Um, and then, Matt, you had a couple. Blinky. I don't know. I, I went in a different direction. I was thinking the Grapes of Rather would be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I'm imagining just like um, sort of being John Malkovich style. The entire uh, Jode family is played by Matt Rather's. <laughs> you know that like he's he's sort of in drag giving a speech about how like women are the the backbone of civilization and all that drag all, the, all, all that jazz 
Uh, and then I'll also be Matt the Rather everywhere in the night. I'll be Matt Rather whenever there's a Matt Rather born or a Matt Mather crying or there's a Matt Rather who's not doesn't have enough to eat. Anyway, continue. No, no, no. no. I think I think I think that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, the grapes of Rather, the Rather of Khan you had as well, which yeah. also takes us back to rich Corinthian leather because it's a vortex, definitely. And then I made a special custom movie poster, which we'll we'll put in the show notes. I think. Do you want to you want to put it up there, Mark? Was that any good? Did you guys enjoy that, or is it not worth showing to people? I see it whenever I close my eyes now. <laughs> excellent, it, excellent. It haunts my nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else for the good of the order? Nothing. All right, awesome. Three <laughs> years in the tank. You know, we still got it. But it, you know what? Sometimes you just want to roll over and go to sleep rather than get romantic on your leather anniversary. <laughs> um, but if you want to get romantic with us, you can reach us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com. You can give us a call at uh, 203-something-something-something-something-something-something-something. 203-285-6401. That's right. And we'll, we'll, if you call, maybe we'll play your voicemail on the podcast. Maybe. And, <laughs> If you want to learn more about, uh, about the Godillian meta discourse, you want to learn about the Vortex, you want to meta learn drink. about meta drink. If you want a meta drink, there's really only one great meta bar that you can come to on the internet, and that is www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably does. So, guys, I found the soundtrack for Bounce. And it features not only Sixpence None the Richer, but oh. also Lee Nash of Sixpence None the Richer wow. as, as separate tracks. Uh, <laughs> apparently, they, they couldn't get them all in the studio on the same day or something. I don't know. So they, did, they did separate bits. Also has, they're, they're, also has such their engagement fee is quite, I feel, minimum. Um, also has such, such early 2000s slash late 90s stars as Morchiba. Sophie B. Hawkins, Dido, Beth Orton, uh, Sister Seven, uh, some act I've never heard of featuring Sarah McLaughlin, and of hmm. course, Carly Simon slumming it. <laughs> You're awesome. also so vain. You also probably thought this other song was about you. I, re- I really hope that, Matt, that McNeil is going all Passenger 57 up on that airplane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, but, like, 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 he's evading taxes up there. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.